Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Now, just before we get started, we looked at our figures from last month and really good news, um, we've got a lot of new listeners via Spotify. So if that's you, if you've just started listening to us on Spotify, maybe we came into a playlist or your daily drive, thank you so much for listening to The Briefing. And if you like it, um, please subscribe. And if you really like it, please rate and review us. And if you really, really, really like it, please post about us on your socials so your friends can find out. We want to keep uh, growing the briefing audience, so thank you so much for joining us. Let's get into today's topic. Antoinette Latouf, we're talking space on the briefing. Yeah, and it's a pretty exciting time for space exploration in Australia. So much so, it's being hailed as a new era. So from Sunday, NASA will start a series of rocket launches from remote Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Yeah, NASA in the Northern Territory, it's pretty huge. Um, This will be the first time they've launched rockets from a commercial facility outside the US. So, so many questions. What are the rockets going to do? And why this particular place in Northeast Arnhem Land? That is our briefing in just a moment. First, here are today's headlines. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of June. The court trial for the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins has been delayed because of Lisa Wilkinson's Logie acceptance speech. The trial of Bruce Lehman was due to start in the ACT Supreme Court on Monday, but the court heard yesterday that the Crown Prosecutor warned journalist Lisa Wilkinson last week that in the event she won a Logie for the story, any comments and their reaction could delay the hearing. Yeah, so in yesterday's decision to delay the trial indefinitely, Supreme Court Chief Justice Lucy McCallum said she made the decision through gritted teeth after Wilkinson openly referred to and praised the complainant in her acceptance speech, meaning the distinction between an allegation and the fact of guilt has been lost, meaning Bruce Lehman would not get a fair hearing. So no new date for the trial has been set, but the Chief Justice said she hoped the trial would run this year. And another major sporting ban for transgender women. Uh, This time it's the International Rugby League. They followed the lead of swimming and banned trans women from playing women's international rugby league. Their statement says, until further research is completed to enable the IRL to implement a formal transgender inclusion policy, male to female players are unable to play in sanctioned women's international rugby league matches. So in addition to swimming and rugby league, the World Athletics boss, Sebastian Coe, has indicated the track and field events could soon follow suit. He praised the FINA decision over the weekend, said it was in the best interests of its sport. And the world soccer governing body, FIFA, is also reviewing their transgender policies. So a lot of movement in this space. And the energy market shutdown could be lifted as early as tonight in a statement The Australian energy market operator says it will monitor the system over a 24-hour period and if the power generators can offer enough supply, then it will end the wholesale suspension. So this means the market operator will no longer be dictating the supply of the energy market. Yeah, so this all comes after the chaos in the energy market last week where the Australian energy market operator had to seize control of the market for the first time in its history to stop blackouts along the East Coast. Now, that short-term crisis was narrowly avoided. And as we discussed earlier on in the week on the briefing, they're now looking at this capacity uh, mechanism. 
which will take years to work out, but basically it's meant to help us get through this transition as we move to large-scale solar. Look, Tom, I think that many people would find a lot of this stuff confusing, but for them it boils down to, am I going to lose power? Is electricity going to cost me a lot more money? But it seems as though things are going to stabilise from here on. Is that a fair enough assumption? At least in the short term, yeah. And I guess it just depends what happens when you hit these kind of spikes in demand and if that comes at the same time as other problems like rising prices overseas. There's all these confluence of factors that led to this crisis last week. So I guess they want more predictability, but, you know, they're talking about bringing this in by 2025. So between now and then, there still could be some of these big crisis moments. The La Nina weather system responsible for record rain and floods over the past seven months has finally ended, according to the Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah, that is very good news. So this weather system began in November brought those devastating floods to northern New South Wales and Queensland in February and early March and just kept on raining and raining and raining. It meant Sydney experienced its wettest year to date and its wettest autumn on record. And despite this La Nina ending, there's still a wetter than average weather outlook because of a developing negative Indian Ocean dipole. And that's a natural climate phenomenon that influences rainfall patterns around the Indian Ocean. Plus, there's warmer than average waters around Australia. Yeah, the Bureau also warned that there's a chance of another La Nina in spring, putting us in line for the first triple La Nina since 2001 and only the fourth on record. All right, in just a moment, we're talking NASA in the Northern Territory. All right, so we're about to get into this story about the NASA launch from remote Arnhem Land. And Antoinette, this is a story that you brought to the table. What got you so interested in it? Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago, Tom, I heard Prime Minister Anthony Albanese speaking from the Northern Territory. These rockets will go some 250 kilometres north into, well, up into the sky to collect data on the physics of the sun and its relationship with the Earth. Yeah, and the, the uh, well, uh, north up is, is kind of the extent of my understanding <laughs> of space, but I know it's a big deal and I wanted to know, like, more about it. Yeah, well, let's do it. We've got Professor Melissa Swart from Flinders Uni with us. She's also the Deputy Chair of the Space Industry Association. So that's an organisation that represents private businesses getting into the space industry. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. How big a deal is it that NASA are launching these rockets from Arnhem Land in Australia? It's really exciting because of the fact that NASA is undertaking a launch from Australia. This is the first time that NASA has contracted a commercial launch provider outside of the US. So that's a really big deal that they have um, confidence in uh, equatorial launch and in Australia to be able to do this. And the reason that the launch is taking place from Arnhem Land is because these are scientific sounding rockets. The tests that they want to conduct in the upper atmosphere essentially is because of the fact that we have better access to those sorts of tests. So um, these aren't rockets that are going to go into orbit around the Earth. They are scientific sounding rockets that are going to conduct um, scientific testing. And that's why they're being launched here in the Southern Hemisphere. And so part of the reason is that it's near the equator, but is there a reason why it needs to be somewhere so remote? Is that to do with the, the sound or the lack of buildings or civilization? It has much more to do with the location close to the equator. So everything in space has to do with um, trajectory. So where you launch from 
determines what sort of access you will have to space. So, yes, it's important that it is from the northern part of Australia, which is very close to the equator. That's part of it. Obviously, of course, launches uh, can be somewhat dangerous. So it is good to have an area of land around them that can enable, you know, the rockets, for example, uh, to return to Earth. Allowing room for rocket bodies to fall back to Earth is good. And yes, I suppose also for the safety elements, because it is still a dangerous activity. And so what were these sounding rockets? You've mentioned scientific data, but what exactly are they collecting and looking for? They're really um, looking at a range of things. One of them has to do with sort of solar activity. So again, that gets back to why is Australia uh, such a great launching place is because of the fact we have, you know, massive clear skies. So again, it's being able to access that scientific um, material because it has access to that place. So solar data, atmospherics, weather, those sorts of things. And it's important to understand what the conditions of low Earth orbit are, but also most of our weather information comes from space. And increasingly, of course, as climate change is a problem, the more that we can learn from space about what is happening on Earth, the more steps that we can take to do with, you know, uh, remediating those effects. So a lot of it has to do with weather and environment. Okay, you said before that it was it was good that it was remote because it's still a dangerous activity, that the rockets come down and there is a risk factor there. Now, it's not like no one lives there. There's Nulamboy, the town, um, which is a largely a mining community. Then there's all the Indigenous communities and um, all the different clan groups, namely the Gomarch clan who actually um, own the land that Equatorial Launch are using there. So how has this project worked in with those traditional owners? Because they seem to be supporting the launch. What's the arrangement? So they've been involved and I can't speak to precisely exactly, you know, how those conversations have taken place, but that has been going on for a long time. So even though this launch has happened now. In fact, it was probably due to happen a couple of years ago, but due to COVID, like everything else, it's taken a lot longer. So, I mean, there've obviously been arrangements regarding the use of the land, but also uh, working with them in terms of land management and employment. So, you know, when I say it's dangerous, I don't mean that this is risky on a day-to-day basis. I'm just talking about the fact that any rocket technology, like anything that has propulsion, has an element of danger to it. And obviously the launch site and the launches themselves are highly regulated and, you know, licences and insurance and a lot of safety inspection is undertaken. So under the um, Commonwealth regime, all of these things are highly regulated and safety inspected. So, you know, they're probably much safer than a lot of other day-to-day activity. But as I say, with anything that's a rocket, you have to anticipate that there are some risks involved in that. And you mentioned that the mission was postponed because of the pandemic. It almost didn't happen because Equatorial Launch Australia, which is that private space company, they almost went bust during the pandemic. Um, so I'm interested in uh, as to how Australia profits from something like this. Australia has made a commitment to develop its space industry and there are a large number of space 
startups in Australia and have been for quite some time. It's predominantly those small entrepreneurial companies like ELA, but a large number of others have been the ones who have been really driving the space economy. And and look, they are people who are clearly risk takers. These are people who've put in their own time and their own money to really push the industry along. And they were responsible for pushing the government to create the Australian Space Agency, which we desperately needed because in order to become a player in the commercial space industry globally, we need a front door through which, you know, business can come and the the space agency is now that front door. So, look, we're not going to see major profits overnight, but we already have a number of, of companies who are involved in things like earth observation, space situational awareness, small sats, CubeSats, a lot of provision in the global supply chain for space industry who are making money for this. So it's a high-tech industry and what is really great about it is that people who are passionate about space no longer have to move overseas in order to get a job in the space industry. Yeah, and I guess the profits keep rolling in, right? Like if this is the first launch of many, this could become quite a, a lucrative space for us. Yes, and it depends upon the sorts of um, launches that we want to do and the sorts of payloads that those rockets will carry. So again, as I said, we're, we're learning as we go along. I mean, we decided for a long time that we weren't going to be a launch provider. That attitude has changed. You have a number of companies now building launch environments or launch pads in different states. So we'll have um, Southern Launch in South Australia. We've got Gilmore Space in Queensland. There are some other things in, in the works. You know, question how many launch providers we can sustain in Australia But certainly there is something unique about a launch from the um, Southern Hemisphere. And at the moment, the only real competitor, I suppose you could say, would be Rocket Lab in New Zealand. And these are the first rockets, as you mentioned, um, that NASA has launched since 95 in Australia. So why has there been that lull in activity since then? This is the first launch that NASA has conducted with a commercial provider ever outside of the US. So this is, again, something that's important. So it's not a, a, a government launch. This is being provided mm-hmm. by a commercial provider. Look, the whole space industry has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years. We have moved from viewing every rocket as being like a government single payload big rocket to um, much smaller Um, launches. So things that are taking, we're no longer sort of going right up to um, geosynchronous orbit. We're looking at uh, low earth orbit, which is much closer to home. So we're using smaller rockets, but we also have um, much more flexibility about how they deploy their payload. So you, you would have seen things like, you know, SpaceX has taken people up to the International Space Station, but for years it's been taking commercial payloads and literally they just grab these CubeSats and throw them out the back of the ISS. So we're much more flexible about what we think about as launch. So it's really been a very disruptive change to the space industry itself. Who does the thing? So it's commercial providers, entrepreneurial, small startups, not big government corporations. It's been a a long time coming. And as I say, I think a lot of the heavy lifting has really been done by people in small business and, you know, all power to them. Like these are people who've Mm. really devoted themselves. If you look at, you know, Gilmore Space in Queensland, you know, these are individuals who are really putting their heart and soul into it. So will this be one of those um, big dramatic 
NASA launches where it's on TV and there's a big countdown or does that thing only happen when you go to the moon? This won't be one of those big dramatic countdown ones. I mean, there's plenty of them going on um, in the US at the moment. I mean, SpaceX regularly has those sorts of launches and the uh, Artemis project at the moment has a massive rocket undertaking what is called a wet test um, that's happening this week, which means it's totally fueled up on the launch pad and takes it down to about um, T minus 10. So they're getting ready uh, at some point, hopefully in the next couple of years to actually um, launch that big rocket into space. But, but these are much, much smaller. And we had a launch of a couple of sounding rockets from South Australia a couple of years ago. There was a, a little bit of a malfunction and they had to get the local, uh, you know, CFS guy to come and spray it with a bit of foam. You know, that was sort of the, the size of the uh, disaster right. that you're the talking about here. So they're pretty small. Professor Melissa Swart from Flinders University. She's also the Deputy Chair of the Space Industry Association of Australia. Yeah, super exciting to see these, um, yeah, NASA coming to remote Northern Territory. They're even having to bring these rockets in by barge, so on a boat. That's how remote it is. Good for a few reasons. I mean, yeah, one, it's great to see our space industry really kicking off. This was the whole idea of that space agency that Turnbull set up in 2018, as Melissa mentioned. And also just, I guess, in Australia's bigger economic story, like for so long we've been a country whose economy is driven by digging things out of the ground, our resources industry. To see us moving into these high-tech international industries like space and also not too far down the road in Northern Territory, they're building the big sun cable solar facility, which will export renewable energy all around Asia. So that's another example of a great new industry that Australia's getting into and this is what we need to do to grow our economy in more interesting mm. sustainable ways and create new and exciting job opportunities here in Australia. Yeah and, and to Melissa's point to ensure that our innovators stay in Australia for so long we've heard about our scientific and innovation brain drain um, we need more reasons to keep them on our shores and driving new economies. Tomorrow on The Briefing we're going deep on the transgender policy changes of the major sporting bodies. Listener.